I'd like to invite you to turn to what has become one of Cynthia and my favorite passages of Scripture. Psalm 51. This became a favorite passage for Cynthia and me a few years ago now. One of our sons called late one night, completely broken. He said things like, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm so tired of fighting it. My life is a mess. I can't sleep. I don't know what to do. Help. At that point, we shared the gospel as best we knew how. Again, for about the thousandth time, probably. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And we must, we must respond with repentance and faith. It's just that simple. And then I suggested that our son take his Bible and turn to Psalm 51 and make David's prayer your prayer. He said he would, and the phone conversation ended. And Cynthia and I prayed, knowing that God had brought our son once again to a crossroad in his life. A few minutes later, the phone rang. It was probably more than a few minutes, but the phone rang, and he was weeping uncontrollably. And between stops and starts, he was able to say, Mom and Dad, that is exactly what I needed. I've made this psalm my prayer. And so that day, our son's life was changed forever. And he's not perfect, far from it. But there is no question, no question, that his life is being transformed, little by little, every day. Sometimes it's two steps forward and three back. But he's becoming more and more like Jesus. And Cynthia and I are so thankful. Psalm 51. If you're able, please stand with me as I read for us from God's Word, beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make known you'll make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoice to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You, do not, you are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, you are holy, perfect. Sin has no part of you. We just sung about it. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee perfect in power, in love and purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And your word commands us to be holy as you are holy. And yet apart from you, that is impossible. And even with you, we admit it remains a struggle. But according to your word, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, use this psalm of King David to inspire us to do just that, to confess our sins and to experience your forgiveness and cleansing from all unrighteousness. Even today, as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Many of you will be aware or familiar with that verse that I just mentioned in my prayer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. God is righteous and he's faithful. That's the main clause of that sentence. And because of who he is, he is able to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there is a condition clause mounted on the front end of that verse. If we confess our sins. So what if we don't confess our sins? Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 reads, People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Did you hear the contrast? Conceal versus confess. Will not prosper, will receive mercy. Let me make it real simple. No confession equals no forgiveness. No confession equals no forgiveness. Confession is an absolutely essential prerequisite if we are to receive and experience God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness and cleansing. It is a non-optional requirement for those seeking to establish and maintain a relationship with our Father who is in heaven. So why would we not confess our sins? What would prevent us from being completely transparent, open, and honest with both God and one another? You tell me. Shame? Embarrassment? Fear of forfeiting that glittering public image that we've managed to create? Wanting the approval of others, justification, blame, pride, rebellion. Or maybe we just enjoy our sin and we don't want to turn from it. My copy of the scriptures has some preface comments ahead of verse 1 of Psalm 51. Yours might as well. It reads, For the choir director, a psalm of David. That's King David. The one who rose from the obscurity of tending his father's sheep to become one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. That King David. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. 
Nathan was an Old Testament prophet that was conscripted by God to confront David on a sin that he had masterfully covered up. The story of David's, I love this phrase, how he phrased it, going into Bathsheba, here in the preface, refers to a report that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me just give you an executive summary of the story. David was king of Israel. Kings in those days were accustomed to doing and getting whatever they wanted. After all, they were the king. On this occasion, David had stayed home in Jerusalem while his military was out on a campaign away from the city. David saw the wife of one of his military officers bathing from the roof of his palace. Apparently, well, he sent for her, and one thing led to another, and she became pregnant. Apparently, abortion wasn't as popular in David's day as it is in our day, unfortunately. So he decided that he would fix the problem by arranging for Uriah, her husband, to be killed in the battle. And so Uriah died on the battlefield. Interesting, David's cover-up only served to multiply his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11 ends with these words. When the time of mourning was over, that's for Bathsheba, when the time of her mourning for Uriah, her husband, was over, King David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You may want to underline that in your Bibles. How does that saying go? You fool some of the people some of the time. But you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And sometimes we can even fool ourselves, can't we? But beloved, let me be clear. We fool God none of the time. So Nathan arrived on the scene in the very next chapter. Chapter 12, verse 1. We find Nathan showing up. And it's an absolutely fascinating confrontation. Allow me to read. Listen as I read. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. 
He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took that poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Have you ever been there? A skeleton tucked away in your closet, so well hidden, tucked away in the recesses of your mind out of sight, never talked about, but now it's been exposed for everyone to see. How would you respond if you were David? King David. Well, King David wrote a psalm. Psalm 51. But only after God used Nathan, the prophet, to expose his wrongdoing. My hope and prayer this morning is that King David's confession will inspire us to follow in his steps. It is an exemplary confession. In the New Testament, we have what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It was given by Jesus himself after his disciples requested that he teach them to pray. Perhaps Psalm 51 can be accurately referred to as a model confession given in response to Nathan's whistle-blowing confrontation. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. David begins his confession with three realities. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Accept the reality of your sin. Reality number one. 
We don't have a leg to stand on. David began by asking God to to be gracious to me. Or other translations read, have mercy on me. His request was based on two things. God's loving kindness and the greatness of his compassion. Does that dynamic duo bring any memory verses to mind? Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 that form the basis of a great hymn that we often sing. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions they never fail. They are new every morning. And because of that renewing combination, because he is of his never ceasing loving kindness and his never failing forgiveness compassions, the writer offers this assessment. Great is thy faithfulness. David knew that he didn't deserve it. Neither was there anything that he could do to earn it. All he could do was make his appeal. Oh God, be gracious to me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We have a friend that often comes over for coffee. And usually she brings something with her, some small little thing. But occasionally she comes with nothing. And she always makes the announcement, here I am, arms a-swinging. Meaning she doesn't have anything with her. And David comes to God following Nathan's confrontation with arms a-swinging. He has nothing to offer but his brokenness. Didn't have a leg to stand on. And neither do we. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 states it plainly. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard of perfection required for relationship with God, we've all missed it. We can't meet it. And there are no exceptions. We all fall short. Reality number two, we have to own it. Not only do we not have a leg to stand on, but we have to own it. Notice how he describes what he is bringing to the table. My transgressions. My iniquities, my sin. Three different words are used to capture the full extent of his wrongdoing. It also emphasizes his wrongdoing. Transgressions has the idea of crossing the boundary. King David had certainly crossed the boundaries that God had laid out in his law. Iniquity has the idea of twistedness. Or perversion. Sin has the idea of falling short or missing the mark. And with that comes a little repeated personal pronoun, my. King David was owning it, all of it. His transgressions, his iniquity. His sin. The question is, 
Are you prepared to own yours? Am I prepared to own mine? Reality number three, God is our only hope. Did you notice King David made no excuses? He didn't try to blame others. He didn't downplay or minimize his sin. Rather, he makes three specific requests. Blot out, wash, cleanse. Blot out means to strike from the record, to erase it, to take out that white out and cover it up. Hit the delete button. With wash, he is asking God to, to throw it all in the laundry. My mom was a tide lady. Cleanse is a request to be ceremonially cleaned up. He's talking about defilement, being ceremonially unclean. Beloved, confession begins by accepting the realities of our sin. The reality is you and I don't have a leg to stand on. We have to own it. And God is our only hope. These realities ought to make us like that tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Could not even lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No confession equals no forgiveness. Secondly, acknowledge the depth of your sin. Verses 3 to 6. Verse 3, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. King David could not escape. He was aware. There was an awareness of his sin. And he was prepared to acknowledge them. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. But wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Uriah when he took his life? Absolutely. Of course he did. But ultimately... All sin is against our Father who is in heaven. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah, their families, his family, the kingdom. In a sense, even against his own body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 reads, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. One Bible commentary point, commentator points out, once we understand that no sin is against a fellow human being alone, and that all sin is a transgression against God, 
we will no longer treat it so lightly. I hope that's true. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That is in essence what confession is all about. You're right. I was wrong. We don't try to excuse it or minimize it or change it. Claim that it is somehow being culturally sensitive or politically correct. We agree that it is wrong. That's what it means to confess. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David's not suggesting that his mother was somehow promiscuous. That's not what he's suggesting. Neither is he offering a kind of a veiled excuse. Look how bad I started out. What could you expect? Rather, what he is doing is acknowledging the depths of his sin. When David looks in the rearview mirror of his life, he sees that his problem is much deeper than these actual activities that he engaged in. He sees that his heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. David understood the doctrine of depravity, which says all men, as a consequence of the fall, are born morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, and at enmity with God, and unable to choose to respond appropriately to God's demonstration of love for him. Total depravity. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That is who we are by nature. And Romans chapter 1 tells us what will become of us if we are left to ourselves. It says that we will naturally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. David understood and acknowledged the depth or the extent of his sin. And that realization prepares us for true confession. But notice, and I appreciate this, David doesn't wallow in, his, in this pit of despair. Notice verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part of you, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Sure, the, the sin nature was deep within him. But at the same time, David is recognizing that his Father who is in heaven wants to work deeply within us to transform us from the inside out. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel delivered a message to the nation of Israel from God while they were in exile. It included this promise from God. And I will give you a new heart 
and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Confession is not a a time of self-flagellation where we beat ourselves up, but a yielding. A yielding to the one who claims to be the potter and we the clay. No confession equals no forgiveness. Thirdly, plead for God's gracious reconciliation. Recently I've been reading a book. The author makes this comment. God will not only forgive you, he'll also restore you. He says that even if you are cast out to the furthest furthest part of the heavens, he will get you. He'll bring you back. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. God is waiting for you to trust him enough to be honest so that he may restore you by his grace. Look at verses 7 to 12. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is all about restoring a broken relationship toward God. Sin separates us. It alienates us from God and separates us from one another. And David said that that separation was as painful as broken bones. How far is the east from the west? In Psalm 103, King David is praising God for his mercies when he wrote these words. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Perhaps David was reflecting on God's answer to his plea here in verse 9. Erase any record of my sins as far as the east is from the west. And notice he doesn't ask for a renovated heart. Create in me a new heart. In other words, do the kind of exchange that Ezekiel referred to in that verse we just read. Take out my stony, stubborn heart and give me a brand new, responsive and tender heart. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was given selectively and temporarily. Not all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon some believers 
to empower them so that they were able to do a specific task that God had assigned in keeping with his redemptive plan. But on this side of the cross, following the day of Pentecost, reported in Acts chapter 2, all true believers enjoy a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul asks a rhetorical question. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So we need to understand that for David, the not to take away your spirit from me was a legitimate concern because he had witnessed it. In the previous king, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, it reads, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. David, knowing what he knew, pleaded with God, Do not make me like Saul. Do not take your spirit from me. Though the Holy Spirit does not leave true believers like you and I, it is possible for us to grieve the Spirit by engaging in sinful activities and living unrepentant lives. Lives that are choosing to, to cover up rather than confess or ignore or justify or excuse our sin. I remind myself often that I need to be putting myself in places and developing habits that invite the Holy Spirit to do his renovating work in my life. Beloved, I think that's the best that we can do. But when we choose to enjoy the pleasures of this world, lust of the flesh, and lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, 1 John 1, 16. We repeal that invitation to the Holy Spirit by the way we live. And the Holy Spirit is grieved. We put him on the sidelines of our life. He becomes like a spectator instead of a personal trainer. This may be a good time for another clarification. For true believers, confession allows us to maintain a vibrant, dynamic relationship with our Father who is in heaven. David was a man of faith. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that was written to true believers. As true believers who continue to battle the hangover of our sin nature, confession is a lifeline to our relationship with God. For those who have not yet believed that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, by trusting him alone for their salvation, confession is a new birth 
The apostle describes it this way in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the wages of sin, which is death, both physical and spiritual. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. No confession equals no forgiveness. Fourthly, understand what God desires. Look at verse 15 and 17. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God is not looking for us to earn his forgiveness through any kind of religious performance or good works. Even living under the Old Testament sacrificial system, God wanted those sacrifices to be a visible expression of what was happening in a person's heart. An acknowledgement of their unworthiness was to be an outward expression of an inward confession. What is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart? At our last Ministry of Men leadership team meeting, I was leading a study time in which we talked about the need for battling selfish ambition and pride. We referenced Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, in which God states this, But to this one I will look. To this one I will look. And in this context it means, that word look means to favor. In fact, the New Living Translation says, will bless. But to this one I will look upon with favor or bless to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. A broken spirit means humility. We're no longer consumed with me, myself, and I. A broken and contrite heart is the polar opposite to that stony, stubborn heart referred to in Ezekiel chapter 36. A broken and contrite heart is open, it's pliable, it's teachable and responsive to God and his word. It enables, it enables us to fulfill the greatest commandment. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. This is God's desire for you and me. And for those who have never believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, trusting him alone for their salvation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 leaves no doubt as to God's desire for you. 
who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And yet, no confession equals no forgiveness. Fifthly, pray for those who are recovering as collateral damage. Verses 18 and 19, By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in, right, in the righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, David realized that his sin, he not only failed as a man, as a husband and a father, he also failed as a king over God's people. And he humbly asked God to restore his favor to his kingdom. The story of Achan and the book of Joshua has been one of those stories that I've just never been able to forget. In chapter 7, we read these words. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Achan was a son of Carmi and a descendant of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. So what's happened is they've entered the promised land. The first city that they take is um, Joshua, or sorry, uh, first city, Wayne Help, that they go, what is it? Jericho. Jericho, thank you. I knew it was a J. Thanks, Gordon. First city they take is Jericho. And God told them, don't take anything from the city. It has to all be burned. Achan decided to take some of the things that were in the city. And it's interesting that it says, how does that verse read? But Israel violated God's ban. Achan took it, the entire nation. You see, sin has a ripple effect. When you and I sin, the consequences of that sin can be far-reaching. We need to consider that before engaging in those promises that accompany the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. No confession equals no forgiveness. As we prepare to participate at the table of the Lord this morning, we're reflecting on the life, the death, and the resurrection of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that includes you and me. In the words of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let us participate with broken spirits, with broken and contrite heart, following in King David's footsteps as he made his confession, accepting the reality of our sin, acknowledging the depth of our sin, pleading for God's gracious reconciliation, understanding what God desires, and praying for those who have been impacted by our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for King David's confession. Although not perfect, he left us with an inspiring example. Help us to follow in his steps so we can live lives empowered by your spirit 
for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.